This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, and your source for all the latest mental health-related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of news media reports about the latest research into potential new treatments for mental illness, this is where you'll hear about it first without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And welcome back again, folks. This is the Wednesday, March the 12th edition of Psychiatry Today, and hope that you've been feeling well. Perhaps if you're not feeling at your best, it may be due to the adjustment to being back on daylight savings time. That's right. This past weekend, we turned the clocks ahead, lost an hour of sleep Saturday night into Sunday, and uh, the adjustment to that is certainly a top mental health-related story, and we'll get to that very shortly. But before we do, I want to remind those of you who are listening to this either live being played for the first time on 7 p.m. Wednesday night, the 12th of March. 2014, or playing back the archived copy of the show, either from americaswebradio.com or those of you who download the podcast from iTunes. Thank you so much for all of your loyal listening. Uh, But if you have any desire to get in touch with me, let's say you have a comment or a question about anything that I've discussed on the show, or maybe you have a mental health-related problem that you're grappling with or someone close to you is having a problem with and you're not sure how best to get help with that, uh, let me be a resource for you. And you can contact me with all your mental health-related questions via this email address. It's Dr. Scott, spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at RadioSandySprings.com. That's R-A-D-I-O. S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S dot com. And I want to reassure all of you that anyone who sends me an email, there will be no personal information, nothing in remotely personally identifying will be disclosed on the air while I give you my answer to your question. And with that, let's get started with the top mental health-related story this week, of course, that is coping with this lost hour of sleep that we suffered this weekend going back to daylight savings time. Now, there's a couple of articles about it. Um, The sleep problems may surface for some of you well after the clocks have been moved forward. Many people have difficulty changing their body clocks. The internal clock we have tends to be programmed for a little bit longer than a 24-hour day, and we normally run a bit behind the time shown on the clock. 
This means it's generally easier to stay up an hour later than to sleep an hour earlier, which is why the daylight savings time change is a little more of a challenge than when we come off of daylight savings time in the fall. It's important to maintain a consistent wake time, which should vary by no more than an hour on any day, including weekends. And that's a big challenge for a lot of people who tend to sleep quite a bit more than one hour later on weekends compared to weekdays. As always, no matter what the situation with the clocks, as far as promoting good sleep, don't do work or chores or tasks in the bedroom. The bedroom should only be for sleep and sex. Uh, perhaps reading, especially if that's a paper book as opposed to a tablet or e-reader with a very bright display that might trick your brain into thinking it's still daytime. Watching TV in the bedroom, not a good idea either. Again, the bright screen tricks your brain into thinking it's daylight. And don't turn the TV on and have it on when you're falling asleep either, unless you have one of those sleep timers that will shut it off within a reasonable amount of time after you fall asleep. Those of you who sleep with the TV on all night, you've got to stop doing that. You may not be aware of it, but even if the sound is turned all the way down, the constant change in illumination from the screen during the night is definitely penetrating your closed eyes and stimulating your brain and making your sleep not very restful. Again, it's not going to be in your awareness, but I assure you it's happening. And consistently spend eight hours or less in bed. That will also lead to more solid periods of sleep. Remember, researchers determined we need a minimum of seven hours, but more than eight and a half hours of sleep is bad for us. And uh, as we've talked about many times, exercise can help you sleep, not if you do it just in the hours before going to bed. And okay, we make exceptions to that for some people, but by and large, the best sleepers who exercise regularly do their exercise in the morning. Also, avoiding big, eating a big meal just before bedtime. Uh, all that heavy food in your stomach uh, can disrupt sleep. Uh, although, having said that, going to bed hungry doesn't usually work too well either. And again, avoiding caffeine and alcohol for several hours before bedtime because caffeine is a stimulant and because alcohol disrupts the normal architecture of sleep making it light and restless and easily interrupted and non-restorative, even if it does make you drowsy and feel like you fall asleep faster. And what about those of you who have a lot on their mind? Well, here's a good suggestion. Instead of going to bed and worrying a lot about what you have to do, or worse yet, waking up during the night, and worrying about what you have to do the next day and being unable to fall back to sleep, it might be a good idea to establish a designated worry time. That's right, a worry time, at least an hour, preferably more, before your bedtime. Say, okay, this is when I'm going to write down all the things I'm worried about and what I need to do the next day. And then you put this list aside 
and that should enable you to relax and go to bed. This is really a good idea if you get these things out of your brain and down onto the paper, and especially if you formulate a plan of action to address these things that are bothering you. You know, in my opinion, it's not enough to say, okay, well, I've identified these issues that I'm worried about or that I'm anxious about and therefore may disturb my sleep. I think this method will enhance your sleep even more if you take a few extra seconds and say, okay, well, what am I going to do about the situation? Formulate your plan of action. Write that down as well. But again, that shouldn't be right before you go to bed. It should be early enough. And having said all that, even if you follow all those guidelines, it is not unusual for everyone to have an occasional bad night sleep. And as long as it's not happening on a frequent or regular basis, the effects are not too terribly serious. But still, there are going to be many people who are kind of stumbling around wondering why they don't feel like springing forward. Um, the extra hour of daylight at the end of the day takes took away an hour from our morning snooze. And uh, according to a survey commissioned by Mattress Firm Incorporated, it takes us about three and a half days to adjust to this loss of that hour of sleep in the morning which I was surprised. Uh, I often have people who come to see me report it takes them longer than that. But, well, I guess that's an average. And we don't really do anything to get ready for it. Of course, uh, obviously, it's too late for this year. But these tips that I came across may, if you can keep them in mind, help you a year from now when we have to adjust to this again. Uh, and it is of an issue of some consequence that we don't adjust well to this time change because many Americans are already sleep deprived and according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta, insufficient sleep is a national public health epidemic. A University of Pennsylvania chronobiologist suggests that fewer than 10% of Americans can get by on eight hours a night, but a recent national health interview survey found that about 30% of Americans, uh, adults that is, get less than six hours a night. So every hour counts. All right, like I said, this is for next year, but here's how to get ready for the Sunday when we turn the clocks ahead. Start banking some extra sleep, that is, prior to that night, Start going to bed 15 minutes earlier, several days before this time change, maybe the week before. And also, according to the National Sleep Foundation, use morning light to help you get your sleep at night. If you get a good dose of sunlight early in the day and then limit your light exposure later at night, it will help facilitate uh, your sleep and the adjustment to uh, it being light much later. And as always, stick to the same bedtime and same wake time, even on weekends, like we said before, the other article talked about maybe as much as an hour later on the weekends, but uh, certainly no more than that. 
And, you know, so basically that's really the one simple adjustment is starting to go to bed a little bit earlier the week before we turn the clocks ahead. And that will make the adjustment not as drastic, along with getting exposure to light in the morning. All right, well, hopefully it won't take you more than the uh, average three and a half days to get adjusted to being back on daylight savings time and to once again be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. So with that, let's take a commercial break. And when we come back, we'll have more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. And I'll be right back with you after this break. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, the show where you get all the latest mental health-related news with your host, Dr. Scott. And unfortunately, folks, the next item certainly quite unpleasant and disturbing, but it certainly it is a major mental health-related news item. A mother who is pregnant tried to drive her kids into the ocean off the Florida coast, has been charged with attempted murder. This pregnant woman drove a minivan with her three children inside into the surf off of a Florida beach, was charged with three counts of attempted murder. A tourist's video showed lifeguards and bystanders rushing to help rescue the woman, Ebony Wilkerson, and her children, ages 3, 9, and 10, as their minivan bobbed in the waves on Daytona Beach last Tuesday, the 4th of March. Volusia County Sheriff Ben Johnson said Wilkerson told authorities she was not trying to hurt the children. According to a sheriff's office report, the children told investigators, Mom tried to kill us. The oldest child, a girl, fought with her mother over control of the steering wheel to try to turn the minivan away from the water. Wilkerson, 32 years old, was arrested after a mental health evaluation and charged with three counts of child abuse. 
the children had been placed in state custody. After driving the car into the ocean, Wilkerson tried to block beach safety officers from getting into the minivan to rescue the children, according to the sheriff's report. The 10-year-old girl told investigators that her mother took them to the beach so we could die. Wilkerson locked the doors of her 2012 Honda Odyssey, closed the windows, and told the children to close their eyes and go to sleep, according to what the children told investigators. Wilkerson ignored her children's pleas and told them they were going to a safer place. A witness saw the girl on her mother's lap fighting for control of the steering wheel. One child pushed the power button to lower the windows, and the youngsters started screaming for help. Bystanders ran over, but Wilkerson told them everyone was okay. She then got out of the minivan, leaving the children inside. Beach safety officers who started pulling the children out had to fight off Wilkerson, who was grabbing at one officer to try to keep him away from the vehicle. Wilkerson, her father, and the two older children told authorities that she brought her children to Florida this week to get away from an abusive marriage. The day before the incident, Wilkerson, at her sister's request, was evaluated by police who determined that she did not qualify for involuntary mental health commitment. Her sister then took Wilkerson to the hospital, but she left against medical advice. And the children mentioned to investigators that she had been acting crazy when they arrived in Florida. So here we have another tragedy, although this one not including the tragic loss of life, thank goodness, uh, but another horrible scene involving a mentally health person, a mentally ill person, out of control, uh, <clears throat> threatening the lives of others, and a time when an intervention could have been made that could have prevented the situation from happening. Now, in this case, Unlike other very, very sad cases, like Andrea Yates, who drowned all of her children, thinking she was saving them from demonic possession, or Susan Smith, who rolled her minivan into a lake, drowning her two boys. Uh, fortunately, thanks to alert bystanders and lifeguards, there was no loss of life in this situation. But we're once again faced with the questions how could something like this happen? Uh, it's one thing for someone to be mentally ill and not access treatment, but she was evaluated by legal authorities. She was evaluated by medical personnel. How could this have happened? Well, the answer is that it is very difficult to force someone into treatment legally. Uh, there has to be a very clear and obvious and present danger that someone presents to themselves or others. And if Ms. Wilkerson had not said anything to authorities about wanting to harm herself or her children, and 
there had been not clear evidence presented to a judge, some sort of legal authority to document that she had made threats against herself or her children or others, then the authorities have no choice but to allow someone to refuse mental health treatment. It's a civil rights issue. Um, in decades past, it used to be too easy to throw someone away in a psychiatric facility and literally um, throw away the key. And the laws for mental health, health hygiene, perhaps being somewhat too liberal nowadays, are a backlash against the abuses of decades past, especially in, right up until the early part of the 20th century. Uh, it's only in the middle to latter part of the 20th century that uh, mental health hygiene laws were reformed uh, to give patients more rights. <clears throat> Having said that, although it's a very difficult thing for families to deal with, there is recourse. Um, it is not easy to figure out how to go about getting your obviously mentally ill loved one the help that they need, even if they are refusing it. And it also may be expensive. Um, you're talking about going before a court and convincing a judge that your family member is mentally ill and is refusing treatment and their judgment is so impaired that they are no longer capable of caring for themselves and therefore due to their impaired judgment and their untreated mental illness, they may be a danger to themselves or others. In some jurisdictions, it may be family court, probate court, but typically there is some sort of legal way of getting this done. Again, not easy at all, um, and the process is not necessarily uh, transparent either, um, and it can be done. So really I think the lesson here is just to be aware uh, that if you or someone you know has an obviously mentally ill relative and you're concerned for their personal safety or the safety of those under their care, uh, <clears throat> then you are not able to get the legal authorities or the healthcare system to get them into treatment. Uh, again, you may have no choice but to pursue a legal option and be prepared to provide ample and very specific documentation of <clears throat> incidents of behavior that demonstrate terribly impaired judgment and inability to care for oneself due to mental illness which is not treated uh, and include direct quotes and statements as, res, uh, as it pertains to statements of threats uh, against others or oneself. Well, again, we, uh, we are very grateful uh, that these children were not harmed, at least not physically. Um, the harm that comes to them psychologically from escaping an attempted murder at their own mother's hands uh, certainly is unfathomable. And these kids are going to need counseling perhaps for the rest of their lives, uh, but uh, at least 
their their lives have been spared. <clears throat> Next up on tonight's show, a disturbing report about doctors prescribing more sedatives. Doctors in the United States are writing more prescriptions for sedatives than ever before. And the frequent use of these powerful drugs in combination with narcotic painkillers may be causing medication-related deaths, according to a new study. It's actually been known for quite some time that multiple drug overdose deaths, whether intentional as in a suicide attempt or uh, accidental overdose deaths from recreational use, have, <clears throat> have long ago overtaken the numbers of deaths that resulted from illegal drug overdoses. And for all of the notorious celebrity multiple drug overdose deaths that take place, Philip Seymour Hoffman most recently, others in the past like Whitney Houston, Heath Ledger, of course there are many, many dozens and dozens of anonymous people who die from similar cocktails, usually including, as this article mentions, a combination of narcotic pain relievers and sedatives. Now, sedatives are used to treat problems such as anxiety and insomnia, and they include drugs such as Valium, Xanax, Ativan, Clonopin, Librium, Halcyon, and Restoril. Researchers looked at 3.1 billion primary care visits made by Americans between 2002 and 2009, and they found that 12.6% of those visits involved prescriptions for sedatives or narcotic painkillers. They also found that the number of prescriptions for sedatives increased 12.5% per year. Patients who received narcotic painkiller prescriptions were 4.2 times more likely to also have sedative prescriptions, and the number of joint prescriptions of these painkillers and sedatives rose 12% per year. More research is needed to identify the reason behind the increase in the sedative prescriptions, and there needs to be a national effort to highlight the danger of the co-prescribing of these two types of drugs, which contribute to at least 30% of narcotic painkiller-related deaths. There's also a number of risks associated with sedative use, including falls in older people and increased risk of emergency department visits and untold disability for drug dependence. Well, it's time to take another break here on the show. We'll have more mental health-related news when we come back from that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Hello, this is Michael Daly with Atlanta Healing Center. We know that addiction is a brain disease. Addiction is a family disease. Addiction is a treatable disease. We have a caring professional staff with over 30 years' experience to help you and your loved ones in your recovery. You can reach us at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Please join us at 4 p.m. on Tuesday afternoons. Come on, follow Snipples to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. 
Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow sniffles.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy, back to work the next day, and it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow sniffles.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio with you. Just some final thoughts about the study of doctors prescribing more sedatives and more patients getting these combinations of sedatives and painkillers. I make no bones about the fact that I'm very much against doctors prescribing sedatives. I don't prescribe them to my patients, and if people come to me already taking them, I let them know that I will not continue them and that it is my recommendation that I help them get off them as soon as possible. Uh, They're extremely dangerous and addictive, even if someone is not prone to that type of behavior or problem. And what's more is they don't fix the underlying problem. If you have a problem with anxiety or insomnia, taking a Xanax or an Ativan or a Klonopin is only going to mask that problem temporarily. It isn't going to fix the underlying reason why you're anxious or not sleeping well. And if you get used to taking those medications on a regular basis to treat your anxiety or insomnia, eventually your body will require higher and higher doses to get the same effect. And at some point, it's likely as not that they will stop working altogether. And then you'll have even worse anxiety or insomnia than you had to begin with. That is a phenomenon known as rebound insomnia or rebound anxiety. They also have very serious long-term health consequences. Long-term use of sedatives can result in permanent damage to functions like attention, thinking, or memory. Someone uh, having changes much like uh, a disease that causes dementia. And furthermore, they can even slow your metabolism down and cause you to gain weight. And clonopin in particular has been associated with the risk of osteoporosis in women. So uh, it's best that those drugs be avoided. And if you find yourself already dependent on it, you better talk to your doctor now about trying to gradually wean off. Um, And hopefully your doctor will cooperate with you in this effort. Otherwise, you might need to go to a treatment center to be detoxified safely off of those drugs. Let us now turn our attention to a uh, military mental health update. Psychiatric illnesses are widespread among United States soldiers. Well, we knew this already, but there are three new studies that suggest a sizable percentage of American soldiers suffer from some type of mental health issue at rates higher than those seen in the general population. The rate of major depression is five times as high among soldiers as civilians. Intermittent explosive disorder is six times as high 
and post-traumatic stress disorder is nearly 15 times as high. Two of the three studies relied on data from the STARS study, a major research effort involving almost 5,500 soldiers. The survey is a collaborative effort between the United States Army and the National Institute of Mental Health. All of the studies were released online on March the 3rd, but are slated for publication in the journal, Journal of the American Medical Association's Psychiatry. A full quarter of active duty non-deployed Army soldiers tested positive for at least one psychiatric disorder after taking a mental health assessment exam. 11% showed signs of more than one psychiatric condition. Conditions that had their onset prior to enlistment in the Army included major depression, bipolar disorder, anxiety disorders, panic disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Conditions such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, intermittent explosive disorder, and problems with alcohol and or drug abuse were also common. Overall, close to 13% of the soldiers examined had mental health impairments that were serious enough to compromise their ability to carry out their Army roles. The findings might be useful to the Army in developing targeted outreach intervention programs for new soldiers, such as interventions for ADHD and for problems with anger management. A second study, led by Harvard researcher Matthew Nock, looked more closely at the link between mental illness before enlistment in the Army and the risk for suicide. Army suicides have increased in recent years for unknown reasons. Using the STARS survey data, Knox's team found that about 14% of soldiers said they had had suicidal thoughts, 5.3% had planned suicide, and 2.4% had made actual attempts. In almost 60% of cases, Soldiers who had attempted suicide had mental disorders that seemed to have begun before their enlistment in the Army. The suicide rate for Army personnel now exceeds that of the general population. A third study led by the National Institutes of Mental Health looked at risk factors that might predict soldiers at higher risk for suicide reviewing data on almost 1 million Army soldiers on active duty between 2004 and 2009, the researchers found an increase in suicide rates between those years and currently and previously deployed soldiers. Those at high risk for suicide were white males, soldiers at a junior enlisted rank, and soldiers who had recently been demoted. Well, again, the news of the mental health state of our soldiers continues to be very dire, as you've just heard. And my suggestion for those of you who feel strongly about supporting our troops, the best way we can do that, support their families. A major source of stress 
for our soldiers is what is going on with their families back home. Uh, they're having financial problems, uh, troubles caring for the children, uh, trouble keeping up the bills, trouble with child care, you name it. Uh, if the people here at home are getting help and not needing to communicate to their, their soldier uh, overseas that they're having problems, that will reduce the soldier's stress and that will go a long way to helping them. So again, supporting the troops means support the troops' families here at home. And uh, hopefully with more and more studies going on of our soldiers' mental health, we will uh, be making some progress and those markedly higher rates of suicide will start coming down. Next up on tonight's show, heart attack risk rises in the hours after having an angry outburst. Now, even before I start talking about this latest study, it certainly is not a new finding that rates of anger and hostility uh, are associated with increased risk of heart attack. This is something that has already been well established. But this new study might supply another reason to try to keep your cool under stress because researchers say angry outbursts may raise your odds for a heart attack or stroke in the hours after the incident. The investigators were quick to point out that the absolute risk to any one person of having heart trouble after an outburst remains very low. But the review of multiple studies found that the risk did increase considerably compared to periods of calm. And it's not surprising that such an association is seen. We know that anger is associated with increased reaction of the body's nervous system to stress. This unhealthy reaction includes increases in heart rate and blood pressure, both of which can have immediate adverse consequences. Researchers analyzed the findings of nine studies conducted between 1966 and 2013 that included more than 4,500 cases of heart attack, 462 cases of acute coronary syndrome, which is an umbrella term that includes heart attack or angina, more than 800 cases of stroke, and more than 300 cases of heart rhythm problems. Within two hours of an angry outburst, a person's risk of heart attack or acute coronary syndrome increased nearly fivefold. Their risk of stroke rose nearly fourfold, and their risk of a dangerous heart rhythm disorder called ventricular arrhythmia also increased. The risk was highest among people who got angry more often and had existing risk factors such as prior heart problems. The findings were published online on March the 3rd in the European Heart Journal. Because outbursts of anger are relatively rare and the effect seems to be transient, the impact on an individual's absolute risk of a cardiovascular event is small but certain people might be at higher risk. 
Although the risk of experiencing an acute coronary event with any single outburst of anger is relatively low, the risk can accumulate for people with frequent episodes of anger. This is particularly important for people who have higher risk due to other underlying risk factors or those who have already had a heart attack, stroke, or those who have diabetes. For example, a person without many risk factors for heart disease who has only one episode of anger per month has a very small additional risk. But a person with multiple risk factors or a history of heart attack or stroke and who is frequently angry has a much higher absolute excess risk accumulated over time. Among people with low heart risk who got angry only once a month, angry outbursts could result in one extra heart attack per 10,000 people per year. That increased to an extra four heart attacks among those with a high heart risk. Among people who got angry more often, five bouts of anger a day would lead to approximately 158 extra heart attacks per 10,000 people per year among those with low heart risk and 657 extra heart attacks among those with high heart risk. All right, well, we'll finish our thoughts on anger and heart attack risk when we come back from this next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back. Come on, follow Snipples to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Sniffles.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy, back to work the next day, and it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Sniffles.com. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. 
This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you on America's Web Radio, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. And we're talking about how having an angry outburst increases the risk of a heart attack in the hours right after said outburst. Now, the findings of this research don't necessarily show that anger causes heart attacks and other heart events, only that there's an association between them. But the findings were fairly consistent across all of the studies included in the review. Cardiologists have long known about the adverse effects of depression after a heart attack, but this article emphasizes the need to not only screen for depression, but also screen for other components of mental stress. If a patient is quick to react when it comes to the anger response, this personality trait may increase the risk of heart attacks and may be worth treating, whether it be a behavioral intervention or a medication. And by treating the tendency to be quick to anger and to have very severe outbursts of anger, uh, that may be one way to mitigate their risk of having a heart attack or some other type of cardiac event. Now, uh, another article about prescription drug abuse. This one is about the fact that friends are the common source of abused prescription drugs. Most people who abuse addictive prescription painkillers get them for free from their friends or relatives while drug dealers are a relatively uncommon source for those at highest risk for deadly overdoses, that according to a government study. People who abuse the most frequently often doctor shop. More than one in four who used these drugs almost daily said they had been prescribed by one or more physicians. Almost as many said they got them for free from friends or relatives. Only 15% of the most frequent abusers said they bought the drugs from dealers or other strangers. Those abusers are probably using at much greater volumes and simply asking a friend for a pill now and then is not going to be sufficient. According to the study, two-thirds of abusers said they used the drugs infrequently and well over half of those users said they got them free from friends or relatives. Uh, the Centers for Disease Control analyzed four years of nationwide health surveys on non-medical use of pain relievers, including oxycodone and hydrocodone. These include the brand name pills OxyContin and Vicodin, a family of drugs called opioids, uh, chemically similar to opium, or otherwise known as opioid analgesics. The study was published online last Monday in JAMA Internal Medicine. Now, I should mention the issue of doctor shopping comes up in this article, but we talked earlier about the increased rate of prescribing of sedatives in combination with narcotic painkillers. Well, a lot of people doctor shop when it comes to sedative prescriptions as well. And 
this is something that should not be uh, allowed to continue. There are efforts in some jurisdictions to try to combat the problem by having registries where physicians can check to see where a patient is getting prescriptions for things before they decide to agree to write them a prescription for either sedatives or narcotic painkillers. Uh, in other words, uh, being able to look up what prescriptions a patient is getting filled and say, oh, well, this patient is getting this medication from another doctor and now they're asking me for a prescription as well. This would be a way to screen out uh, the tendency to doctor shop for these addictive medications. Now, Georgia put such a system in place years ago, but the funding for it never appeared. And so to this day, even though the law has been on the books for quite a while, we doctors from Georgia cannot screen uh, our patients in this manner. There are other states where it is mandated that the doctor search uh, and check this database uh, before agreeing to prescribe medication for someone. Well, clearly more needs to be done in this area uh, so that the heading off of these abuse of sedatives and narcotic painkillers can happen uh, before a patient goes to the pharmacy to get the prescription filled. The overall prevalence of non-medical use of prescription opioid painkillers surprisingly has held steady in recent years at about 12 million or 1 in 20 people age 12 and older. But previous CDC data show overdose deaths involving these drugs more than tripled just from 1999 to 2010, with more than 16,000 deaths that year. By contrast, overdose deaths that involved heroin and cocaine totaled less than 8,000, and deaths that involved often abused prescription drugs that include anti-anxiety medications, like we talked about before, totaled around 6,500. <clears throat> a separate study in the same journal presents Tennessee among states hardest hit by prescription drug abuse as a snapshot of the problem. From 2007 through 2011, one-third of Tennessee's population filled an opioid prescription each year, according to the study. Nearly 8% had used more than four prescribers, and these abusers were more than six times more likely to have fatal overdoses than the least frequent users. The larger nationwide study included data from annual government health surveys for 2008 to 2011 that included questions about use of these powerful painkillers. Non-medical use was defined as use without a prescription or use with the prescription for the feeling or experience caused by the drug. The data don't indicate whether friends or relatives who offered free drugs shared their own prescriptions or had obtained the medication in some other way. Public health messages have urged patients with legitimate prescriptions for addictive painkillers 
not to share the drugs and to turn in any leftovers to designated drop-off sites. The new data suggests a need to strengthen messages to doctors to be on the watch for signs of prescription misuse. A typical scenario is that someone will get a relatively small prescription of narcotic painkillers subsequent to, let's say, surgery or surgical procedure, maybe a dental procedure or oral surgery, and the person might only take a couple of doses and the rest sits in their medicine cabinet uh, until a friend or relative asks them for it or maybe just helps themselves to it when they're over in their house. Uh, there are many cases when uh, neighbors uh, will snoop um, around to find these hidden unused stashes of narcotic painkillers and uh, people will find them missing from their house. Well, again, I think a greater awareness of the issue and tighter prescribing controls that are applied consistently uh, across state lines are really the only way this problem is going to be addressed. Let's stick with a substance-related issue for our next subject. Older adults who binge drink don't live as long. Older adults who binge drink at least once a month, or I should say only as little as once a month, may be setting themselves up for an earlier grave, according to a new study. Researchers found that men and women in their mid-50s to mid-60s who engaged in binge drinking, even when their total number of weekly drinks was considered moderate, had an increased risk of dying over a 20-year period when it compared with regular moderate drinkers. Researchers tracked the drinking behavior of 443 older people ages 55 to 65. They then compared the death rate in older adults who reported they were binge drinkers to that of regular moderate drinkers during a 20-year follow-up period. The findings were published online on March the 3rd and will appear in the May online-only issue of the journal Alcoholism, Clinical and Experimental Research. Binge drinking is defined as downing at least four drinks for women or five drinks for men in about two hours, a drinking pattern that can bring a person's blood alcohol concentration to at least 0.08 grams of alcohol per deciliter of blood. The research found that among older people with modest alcohol intakes, those who binge drank were more than twice as likely to die over the next 20 years compared with men and women who consumed alcohol in a regular, moderate pattern. Put simply, binge drinkers didn't live as long. By the end of the 20-year period, 61% of the binge drinkers versus 37% of regular moderate drinkers had died. An episode of heavy drinking concentrates alcohol's toxicity and is linked to mortality because it damages body organs and increases the risk of accidents. While binge drinking occurs more commonly in adolescents and young adults, its frequency is often overlooked among middle-aged and older adults. The findings show it's not just the number of drinks that matters. The pattern of drinking also has health consequences as a person gets older. 
Older bodies and minds are not as well equipped to handle heavy drinking episodes. Binge drinking may be particularly risky for older adults because they are more likely to have age-related illnesses, and they also take more medications that could cause side effects when combined with alcohol. Certainly a strong cautionary tale for middle-aged folks to avoid binge drinking, stick to moderate use, even if it's more regular, that occasional binge will take its toll. And with that, it's time to wrap up tonight's show. I hope that you found the interesting information that I enjoyed bringing to you informative and helpful. And I hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.